the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers, and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome to the Friday edition of the Dan Prof Show. Thank you for uh, closing out your week with me. Follow the show at danprofshow.com. You can get podcasts there as you can on Spotify and iTunes. And uh, follow on social media at Dan Prof Show. Uh, we begin tonight with St. Andrew of COVID, the Dwight D. Eisenhower of our pandemic, right? New York Governor Andrew Cuomo. And this uh, bombshell report out of... Uh, New York and New York Post reporting that in a call with Democrat lawmakers, a top aide to St. Andrew, her name, uh, Melissa DeRosa, who's the secretary to the governor, apologized to those lawmakers, Democrats, not the state, not the constituents, not the residents of New York apologized to Democrat lawmakers for withholding the state's nursing home death toll from COVID-19, telling them, quote, we froze, unquote, out of fear that the true numbers would be used against us by federal prosecutors. Well, that's a fair cover story. We were afraid that if our performance was brought into the light of day, we could have criminal legal exposure. Unbelievable. Uh, This uh, becomes more unbelievable when she added that, Right around the same time, then-President Donald Trump uh, was turning this into a giant political football. He starts tweeting that we killed everyone in nursing homes, she said. He starts going after New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, going after California Governor Gavin Newsom, going after Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer, the Eva Perone of East Lansing, my parenthetical remark. And uh, directs the Department of Justice to do an investigation into us. And basically we froze, she told Democrat lawmakers. So you were not forthcoming about the true consequences of the governor's policy choice of reintroducing the infected into nursing homes because Trump might tweet something about it. Uh, apparently properly. Trump might uh, and refer the Department of Justice to investigate the governor's office in New York and apparently properly, Uh, the reactions from Democrat lawmakers, interesting, uh, the Assembly, the General Assembly's, uh, New York Assembly's Health Committee Chairman Richard Gottfried, who's a Democrat from Manhattan, rejected DeRosa's expression of remorse. I don't have enough time today to explain all the reasons why I don't give that any credit at all, her apology. Uh, The... State Senate Aging Committee Chairwoman, a Democrat from Syracuse named Rachel May. The issue for me, the biggest issue of all is feeling like I needed to defend or at least not attack an administration that was appearing to be covering something up. And in a pandemic, when you want the public to trust the public health officials and there is this clear feeling that they're not coming, they're not being forthcoming with you, that is really hard and it remains difficult. Oh, sure. 
Yeah, I would see that's a difficult thing to traverse. You either fall in with your political allies or you stand for the truth. Boy, that's a tough choice. Hmm. Uh, One who tried to provide some context, contextualization, really, a assemblyman named Ron Kim from Queens. Uh, They admitted they were trying to dodge having any incriminating evidence that might put the administration or the health department in further trouble with the Department of Justice. That's how I understand their reasoning as to uh, uh, the, the reasoning of why they were unable to share in real time the data. They had to first make sure the state was protected against federal investigation. Oh, I see. <laughs> Again, it's just remarkable. We're afraid we could have done something that exposes us to criminal liability and so uh, criminal prosecution, so we don't want to share it. We're covering up so we don't get implicated. That's something you find persuasive. Oh, okay. Mm. Uh, a related story. The Associated Press reporting on the International Emmy winner, uh, the uh, noted book author about uh, how to provide leadership in a time of pandemic. The Associated Press piling on more than 9,000 recovering coronavirus, coronavirus patients in New York State were released from hospitals into nursing homes early in the pandemic. The uh, new number, 9,056 to be exact, of recovering patients sent to hundreds of nursing homes is more than 40% higher than what the state health department previously released. And this also goes back to the New York state attorney general report that was incriminating, if you will, uh, with respect to the governor's performance. And that was just sort of dismissed out of hand. Remember how Andy Cuomo, you know, who's uh, busy working the casting call in his mind of who will play him in the movie about his life. This is what uh, Andy Cuomo had to say about that attorney general's report just a couple of weeks ago. A third of all deaths in this nation are from nursing homes. New York State, we're only about 28 percent only. But we're below the national average in number of deaths in nursing homes. But who cares? 33, 28 died in a hospital, died in a nursing home. They died. Uh, Who cares where they died? No, the issue is not where they died. The issue, a governor, is should they have died? Would they have died but for your policy? That's the issue. Would they still be alive today if you hadn't reintroduced the infected into nursing homes? That's the issue, isn't it? Not if. Uh, Excuse me, not where, but if. But I, I understand, as far as the D.C. press corps is concerned, Hey, you put together a good press conference. That's all that matters. The policies you pursue, the consequences of those policies, that doesn't matter. As long as you're entertaining, entertaining in the direction of our interests, that's all that matters. Well, not so much to Tracy Alvino, who is an opinion contributor, USA Today, and uh, she is uh, not buying what the governor said a couple of weeks ago and is none too pleased about uh, what he had to say when he was uh, providing cover for his office's cover-up while also pointing fingers in places other than his own face. She writes, New York Governor Andrew Cuomo called his and the state's handling of the coronavirus beautiful. My dad being placed on a ventilator wasn't beautiful. My brother sleeping in the hospital parking lot just so he could be close to dad wasn't beautiful. Standing by helpless while dad's organs failed one by one 
wasn't beautiful. Making the decision to take dad off the machine wasn't beautiful. My father dying all alone wasn't beautiful. The, the uh, Cuomo administration denying my father's family and community a proper funeral wasn't beautiful. Comforting my grieving mother every single day because she doesn't want dad to be dead isn't beautiful. Hearing Cuomo blame these deaths on God, former President Donald Trump, Mother Nature, the media, the nursing home staff, and arguably even the nursing home patients themselves wasn't beautiful. Knowing Cuomo respond, who cares, as you just heard, when speaking about the thousands of seniors who died and were not properly counted wasn't beautiful. Nothing about the inhumane way our seniors were treated by the Cuomo administration wasn't beautiful. It should be criminal. And shouldn't it? Uh, shouldn't it be criminal? It, it seems to me that based on the statements of his aide that they were worried about being implicated in a criminal investigation demands at least some questions be asked about just exactly what they were worried about in terms of criminal exposure. Why did they believe they had legal exposure on the matter of their handling of COVID-19? Hmm. You know, I've said for a while now that nothing will change with respect to the uh, make-believers, the lockdowners, policies, the big city mayors and governors that have been so reckless in pretending there are not trade-offs to be made, so cavalier in dismissing the negative consequences of the choices they made. There need to be a political reckoning in order to send a bit of a message through the ecosystem. People need to rise up and say, you know, I don't appreciate, I don't agree with, I don't approve of the decisions you made during the pandemic. And, um, you know, as uh, we're getting a better handle on the choices that could have been made versus the choices that were made and the competing costs and benefits of those choices, uh, I don't think you should be in office anymore. This potentially presents itself in the... uh, the movement to recall Governor Newsom in California. We'll see if that comes to pass, even the recall election itself. But that provides the potential. Political reckoning is where I thought this would come. Some gov- high-profile governor, high-profile mayor loses their office over their handling of COVID-19, meaning their make-believing and their lockdowning. Well, maybe it'll be a legal reckoning. And frankly, given the criminal inhumanity and irrationality of the policies that have been pursued by those like Cuomo while preening and profiting from said destruction, maybe a legal reckoning would be more fitting than a political one. This is Dan Proft. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We move from a conversation about an imperious governor, St. Andrew of COVID-19, to the imperial presidency. 
yes, including Joe Biden, but not limited to him. In fact, it was historian Art Schlesinger who wrote about the imperial presidency in 1973. Fast forward nearly 50 years, and uh, I don't think the presidency, uh, I don't think Schlesinger could have contemplated just how imperial the presidency would become. That is the thesis of a recent op-ed from our friend Matt Purple, senior editor at the American Conservative, AmericanConservative.com, who joins us now. Matt, thanks for being with us. Appreciate it. Hey, Dan. Always great to be with you. Uh, just setting um, uh, you know, uh, new records for executive orders, the Biden administration, in the first uh, few weeks of, of uh, his presidency. But it's, you know, and, and conservatives are complaining about it, but uh, we can't be surprised, can we? No, we can't. And to be fair, Biden has, has now cranked out the most executive orders in that short a period of time. Uh, in turn, as some of them were to reverse executive orders that have been issued by Donald Trump, but they didn't come in this blitz at the beginning of his presidency. Um, even somebody who you know grew the executive as vastly as George W. Bush did, for example, issued nowhere near this number of executive orders. It really is unprecedented. Um, but that being said, you know, setting the executive orders aside for a minute, we've been bloating the presidency, the Oval Office, for a very long time now. You know, you had um, <clears throat> under George W. Bush, you had the uh, executive branch allotted enormous surveillance powers under 9-11, the Patriot Act, and so on, uh, really grew it as a mechanism of security. Uh, under Barack Obama's administration, you had this idea of the president as celebrity, you know, this shining figure who was going to heal all our ills and cure us completely. And, and also, you know, some very big executive orders himself, himself including on, on DACA, for example. Um, Donald Trump did some of this as well, although I think he was a weaker executive than he often uh, gets credit for. Everybody likes to scream that he was a fascist and an authoritarian and so on. That doesn't really uh, seem to be the case. Nevertheless, you know, certainly that the presidency continued to be imperial. And now here we are. And it just seems like, you know, we, we're supposed to be a small R Republican form of government. Uh, but the only way that power really originates with the people anymore is that every four years we get to choose from, you know, two all powerful figures, whichever one we want to put in the White House. And that doesn't seem like the way that we're supposed to operate. Well, and like you said, uh, you know, the uh, the reaction to uh, a crisis, uh, the terrorist attack of 9-11, expands the power of the presidency. And now the reaction to the pandemic, COVID-19, expands the presidency in the form of things that uh, don't seem so major, maybe in the moment when you're trying to affect a certain outcome, like schools reopening but can turn out to be actually quite major long term. And I just, you know, today on, on Friday, we we uh, waiting with uh, bated breath for the CDC to issue new guidelines about how schools can safely reopen uh, when you've got uh, private schools around the country that have been open since last fall. And according to some counts, more than Biden's goal for his first hundred days of schools offering some sort of in-person learning. It's just sort of past post, but yet you still have uh, all eyes turned towards the CDC on school reopening when we understand schools are largely matters of state and local concern. Yeah, absolutely. You know, you have this pattern of uh, government fails and then accrues more power as a consequence of the failure. And you saw this after 9-11, you know, the, the uh, security bureaucracy, the intelligence bureaucracy had all the information it needed to stop these hijackers. They were getting pulled over for like speeding tickets all over the place. And, and we knew that something was coming, uh, but the intelligence wasn't shared properly. The information didn't get to where it needed to go. And so this attack happened. Yet afterwards, you have this enormous concentration of power uh, within that same bureaucracy with, with those same people. 
And it's the same thing with, with COVID happening, like you said. You know, the FDA, uh, again, should have known that something was coming here. You had labs out in Washington State that were frantically waving their arms around saying, hey, this is a problem. We have this now. It's coming. Uh, the FDA mostly sat on its hands or it got snared in bureaucracy and red tape. And, and now we have the coronavirus as bad as it was. Um, and I would add, too, that you had the same thing with the insurrection. I mean, Dan, I, I could have told you that there was a risk from the Proud Boys coming to Washington, D.C. for the third time in a month, because the, the previous two times they'd come to Washington, D.C., they perpetrated violence then, too. Yet somehow the Capitol Police were totally unprepared. Uh, some, so, somehow everybody seemed to get you know, caught with their, you know, their, their pants down on this. And now, this, and now you have people like John Brennan saying, actually, we need even more power so that we can go after these terrorists. Uh, it's a pattern, and it's a very troubling one. All right, and 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 also, I mean, with the Capitol Police too, I I'm, I would call it more of a desecration, a, John, a la Jonathan Turley, than an insurrection. But there was the offer of ten thousand National Guard's troops for January sixth that was rebuffed by Capitol Police too, which is which makes things all the more curious. You you have you we have the necessary resources to be able to you know peacefully administer any particular event at the Capitol. Um, so it's not a resource issue. It's not even a willpower issue. It's a, it was a judgment call issue in this instance, but that doesn't stop, uh, you know, red diaper babies like, uh, like William Brennan from wanting to take advantage of what occurred. Um, I wanted to get uh, also to this other piece that you wrote. Uh, it was, uh, I think uh, Gil Scott Heron who famously said the revolution will not be televised. And it is David Hogg who is now saying the revolution will have lumbar support, according to you. <laughs> David Hogg is going to save the left from itself by outcompeting uh, a, a competitor, a political opponent, rather than just trying to silence or eliminate him. One of the things that may yet save us from whatever you're worried about today, you know, a civil war or something like the Troubles, whatever, you know, all the fears that have been flitting around for the past month, is the fact that we're just so decadent and we're so wealthy, right? Like America is such a comfortable country right now, even in spite of the COVID, as bad as that's been. And I'm not trying to make light of that at all. But you see, you have the situation where Mike Lindell, who is the head of my pillow and who Donald Trump has invited to the White House personally, you know, he's, he's uh, floated all those claims of voter fraud. He now has a competitor for his pillow company in the form of David Hogg, who's a left-wing activist who's starting his own pillow company in order to compete with my pillow because he wants to drive him out of business, which I can think of much worse ways to go. Like that's not sure. you know, starting yeah. a competitor company. It's hardly the, the least American thing to do here. And, you know, I wish him all the, the, the best. And it does seem like Lindell has come unhinged. Um, but it just, it goes to show you like, you know, even when it comes to the culture war, as bad as the culture war can be, we're still just racing to create pillows against each other. Um, it's, <laughs> right. We might be okay, Dan. We just yeah. might be okay. Right, as a brother against from brother against brother to pillow against pillow, or pillow manufacturing right. against pillow manufacturer. Although it will be interesting to see if that really is anything more than a virtue signal uh, of a. Uh, a capitalist enterprise, because I think David Hogg is going to find out that um, actually running a successful business, building and running a successful business, turns out to be a lot more difficult than just mow-mowing those who have uh, built and run successful businesses, even if you disagree with them politically. So we'll see on that. Matt Purple, senior editor at the American Conservative, theamericanconservative.com. Matt, uh, always good to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Dan. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle.
political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. This is The Dan Proft Show. I'm reliable, I'm a very good listener, and I'm extremely funny. On the Salem Radio Network. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. A question we've been grappling with over the last uh, many weeks is, effectively, can a free society exist with sort of cultural no-go zones based on one's particular views, political views? Uh, a uh, perhaps even a more fundamental question is, can America exist as a free society if uh, we're, we as a nation are living under two different constitutions or frameworks for what we think the founding principles, the framework, uh, as I mentioned, two different frameworks of our nation, of this representative republic, this experiment in small-D democracy. Can we exist as a free society? In, with that sort of dynamic. To help us answer that question, we're pleased to be joined by Charles Kessler, editor of the Claremont Review of Books and author of Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. Charles, thanks for joining us. Appreciate it. Well, uh, it's, a, it's a pleasure to be here, Dan. Thanks for the invitation. Yeah, and so um, the two constitutions that um, we're operating under, uh, describe those for us. Well, it's... Um we, you know, it's a bad thing to have one country and two constitutions <laughs> because you're in, you're in a kind of cold uh, civil war situation, and I think that's sort of where we are right now. Um, the two constitutions I'm talking about are the original constitution, as amended, the constitution of individual rights um, and consent of the governed and limited government, and all that we associate with that federalism and bicameralism all these great civics ideas that go back to the original constitution and the declaration of independence and that's one of america's constitutions the other one which is much younger but it's now um, over a hundred years old is really the liberals constitution or the progressive constitution and that is what they like to call the living constitution we hear this term whenever a Supreme Court justice is going to be confirmed, you know, or is up for confirmation, that um, a liberal like Justice Sotomayor or whomever uh, is very um, skeptical in a way about the, the hidebound, time-bound constitution of yore, but is very gung-ho about the constitution of today and the day after tomorrow. Um, and that constitution, the living constitution, is the the liberals vehicle basically for transforming america and they've they've been pretty successful at it and it is uh the term itself living constitution implies that the old constitution the the real one so to speak is dead or at least that it's on life support it's it's used as sort of a uh um a, a talisman, a rhetorical talisman. Uh, I'm doing this under color of the Constitution and give it gravitas when really the left is forever finding new and exciting penumbras and emanations by which to expand or contract what the black letter of the Constitution says. Yes, that's right. I mean, for a long time, 
for a couple of the first couple of generations of modern liberalism or progressivism, they did talk about the convergence, you know, that the old constitution and their new constitution would grow together and eventually they would be indistinguishable from one another. But they gave up that slow motion argument uh, in the 1960s and then uh, again in the 1990s after the end of the Cold War. And they sort of uh, pulled out all the stops and and they have a very impatient uh, politics now, as you know, <laughs> I mean, they can hardly wait to discover a new right uh, and to apply it uh, and to limit the power of the elected parts of government. That's really the bread and butter of American progressivism now for quite a long time. Well, uh, that's where I want to go when we come back, because uh, so the new rights they're inventing that impose responsibilities on others, the right to an education, the right to housing, the right to health care, and the enshrined rights, the God-given rights as memorialized in the Bill of Rights that they're constricting, like, oh, I don't know, freedom of speech, um, and, and how you rediscover, how we get to the Constitution as it was originally conceived uh, in this environment where many on the the right don't really want to make arguments against the notion that uh, education, health care, housing, uh, gear, uh, a certain income level are indeed rights. More with Charles Kessler, editor of the Claremont Review of Books, author of Crisis of the Two Constitutions, The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. We'll be right back. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. We're speaking with Charles Kessler. He's the editor of the Claremont Review of Books, which, uh, by the way, is periodical. You should subscribe to if you don't already. Author of Crisis of the Two Constitutions: The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. And Charles, before the break, this the two constitutions: the Living Constitution of the Left and the uh, the original constitution of conservatives, uh, uh, originalists, um, and uh, how you go, you move the country back towards originalism against a backdrop where the left argues for all sorts of economic rights that are not enshrined in the constitution because they can't exist equally among everybody simultaneously. They, 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 they confer an entitlement and impose a responsibility on others. Um, and uh, with so many conservatives sort of unwilling to to take up the argument against making housing, education, health care, uh, basic income a constitutional right. Yes, yeah, so it's a real dilemma, I think, because we've been f- fighting the good fight, especially in the courts. I mean, we have appointed a lot of conservative justices to the court over the last, say, 30 to 50 years. But I think what we've learned is the courts can't do it themselves. They can't sort of reverse the metaphysics of rights uh, that the left has taken in this new direction, which you rightly and very smartly indicate is a, uh, you know, it's an endless campaign to alleviate all needs and spiritual problems by creating rights to things, which can then be distributed by government and it and can be played off 
one group against another in a, in a way that is very favorable to the growth liberal government because divide and conquer has always been government strategy. And if you can organize a whole country into different claimant groups, you know, of by income, by race, by gender, they're, they're coming up with amazing new ways to do this. The point is always the same, really, which is to play the groups off against each other and to prevent individuals from governing themselves through the constitutional mechanisms, through democracy as we have known it for more than 200 years. But you can see in the, in the recent, uh, you know, sort of circumstances uh, of the election that increasingly liberals and conservatives have two different ideas even of what it is to have an election. Conservatives understand that votes are individual and so it's not a, it's not a, uh, a minor thing to be able to ascertain that the person who represented themselves as the voter really is a voter. That person was there in, you know, in, in the voting booth and uh, marked his ballot however he wanted to mark his ballot. But from the liberal point of view, it really isn't individuals anymore who are voting. It's groups. There are blocks of votes by socioeconomic class, by uh, race and gender and other things. And it doesn't really matter so much that we are sure this is the individual. This is the black individual whose name appears, let us say, on the ballot form. It's more important that the black vote be effective and, be, and therefore be counted. And some of these niceties of registration and so forth may have to get out of the way, liberals now think, in order to make block voting, group voting, even more effective in our politics. And what we have is a, a disagreement about what an election is. Who is sovereign? Who is the voter here? And a disagreement like that, the courts are not going to be able to uh, adjust, I'm afraid. And, and it's, it's, I mean, it's going to take politics and some very serious politics to try to come come to grips with an issue of that magnitude. I mean, how how concerned are you uh, about the identitarian politics you're you're talking about? This poison that uh, in, in in the creation of you know, in addition to a never ending series of new rights, also a never ending series of new protected classes, where your rights uh, are constricted in deference to uh, their reputed interest in, in not being subjected to discrimination as they define it. Right. Well, how could said earlier? I mean, there are also net subtractions from rights. Yes. It, it, the, 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 new, the new rights, the liberal rights, the statist rights come at a cost. There's no such thing as a free lunch or a free right. And as you rightly said, I mean, there are subtractions from free speech, from free assembly, from all sorts of traditional rights, from property rights. Um, so, so how does this not devolve into a Hobbesian state of nature, a might-makes-right society, a, a warlordocracy? It has a tendency to do that. I mean, the, uh, the, their answer to your question is, that's not going to happen because liberals are going to be in charge. <laughs> <laughs> and they right. know how to do things. They know how to manage systems, you know? Yes. They have experts for this. They're the uh, ones we've been for waiting for. But everybody else, right. I mean, there's really no good guarantee uh, looking forward, I mean, I what what I see is a lot of political conflict to come. Well, uh, well, no, no way well, around it. Well, I mean, if you're advising, uh, you know, you are one, but if you're advising conservative intellectuals, if you're advising conservative office holders, what are the arguments that are key to be taken up? That the intellectual battles that are key to be taken up. So there's some focus of resources for highest best return. Well, I, I think we need a lot more focus than we have had. That's for sure. 
But I think we, in rediscovering the conflict between the constitutions, that's a kind of liberating moment because you realize what you you are fighting for uh, when you realize what is the opposition to <laughs> to what you're you, you're you're fighting for here. And so the notion of individual rights, um, of uh, therefore of a government that is limited. Um, that operates um, uh, indirectly and through federalism and through um, separation of powers and these things, these which are in a, in a certain sense um, as old as the hills, but in another sense very much alive and waiting to be rediscovered uh, in our politics. But if you look at, I, I mean, I think it's a it's a harrowing to to look at the modern university because. That's the one part of American society that the that liberals have basically run for almost a hundred years, and they like they what they they run it in a kind of you know semi totalitarian way, uh, in which they dole out free speech rights and assembly rights and all kinds of things to poor freshmen and sophomores who don't know any better, um, and they rule it um, in a in an authoritarian way that they are quite happy with. And what yes. I what I I see happening is basically, um, modern American progressives have learned how to run <clears throat> the university, and now they want to run the country in something like the same way. Well, we'll end on that uh, note of optimism because they're uh, you know, few and far between these days. Charles Kessler, editor of Claremont Review of Books, author of Crisis of the Two Constitutions: The Rise, Decline, and Recovery of American Greatness. Charles, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Ben. Thanks very much. Take care. Show.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We were talking about St. Andrew COVID at the top of the program and that uh, bombshell apology issued by his uh, top aide to New York State Democrats. Uh, maybe, as it turns out, the guy who should have written a book about leadership during a pandemic is the most vilified governor in America by the corporate media, and that's Florida Governor Ron DeSantis. DeSantis uh, yesterday responded to the report out yesterday that we discussed that uh, maybe there would be uh, or maybe the Biden administration would uh, consider travel restrictions to stop the incidence of COVID infection in states like Florida and California, right? Uh, setting aside even the constitutionality of that or lack of constitutionality of something like that. Here's what uh, DeSantis had to say. People have asked me about, uh, there was some type of report about potential travel restrictions on Americans and on Floridians. Uh, and I just, I think it's an absurd report uh, that they would be doing that. I think it would be unconstitutional, it would be unwise, and it would be unjust. And if you think about it, restricting the right of Americans to travel freely throughout our country while allowing illegal aliens to pour across the southern border unmolested would be a ridiculous but very damaging farce. So we will oppose it 100%. It would not be based in science. 
It would purely be a political attack against the people of Florida. And it's unclear why they would even try talking about that. Uh, just look at the COVID situation in the state of Florida. So since December, the last couple months, Florida's per cases per capita compared to the rest of the country, 28. 27 other states higher per capita cases. And for the, for the entire pandemic, it's a similar story. Hospitalizations per capita over this time period, Florida ranks 30th. 29 other states have higher per capita hospitalizations. Fatalities per capita for this same period, Florida ranks 42nd. 41 states have higher per capita fatalities. So since December 1st, uh, well over half the country has seen much worse COVID results uh, than here in Florida. But all you have to do too is just look at some of the trends. ED visits for COVID-like illness, down 60% in Florida over the last 30 days. That's the number one indicator uh, for, for COVID spread. Hospitalized patients are down about 35% in Florida statewide over the last three weeks. And don't forget, over the, over the winter, uh, Florida peaked at much less level than we did over the summer months. And we were way less per capita than a lot of lockdown states that are always cited as being, quote, the right way to do it. Meanwhile, we vaccinated the most people of any state in the age bracket where most of the fatalities occur, age 65 and plus. Give that man an international Emmy. This is Dan Parker. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers, fixers, and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Please follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at danproftshow. This was an interesting uh, summation from a journalist in quotes, John Heilman over at MSNBC. There are two kinds of Republicans. There are Republicans who are in with the insurrection, and there are uh, Republicans who just will tolerate the insurrection. Those are the two kinds of Republicans, according to Heilman. I mean, I'm sure, except those who vote to impeach or would vote to convict. Oh, and also something else about Republicans generally. They're also morons. Well, I think... Um I think they are some of both that you just described, Nicole, and there I think some of them are uh, are not just OK with it, but approve of it. Uh, I think that's the smaller portion. But but maybe there are a lot more of them than we would like to think. And then there's a whole bunch of the rest who are, as you put it, OK with it, which is really just a way of saying they'll they'll tolerate it. They'll accept it. They'll endorse it because they're too cowardly to do anything else or they're too calculating and ambitious to Tim's point about what they're trying to preserve. They care only about their their political futures and how they perceive it. But I'll tell you what else they are. In addition to being uh, cowardly or or being actual uh, uh, autocrats uh, on the side of the insurrection, in addition to that, they're idiots, because the reality <laughs> is that what if they learned nothing else from, from from if they learned nothing else from yesterday is that loyalty to Donald Trump is of no use to you whatsoever. That's an interesting perspective. So robust is the intellect there. Uh, the whole MSNBC panel. 
this is uh, Nicole Wallace, a talking head for MSNBC, who earlier in the week intimated, she didn't explicitly suggest it, but she certainly made the comparison that just as we used drone strikes to deal with terrorists in foreign lands like Qasem Soleimani, uh, what, what are we to do with domestic terrorists? Is there not legitimacy to use drone strikes with domestic terrorists as we define them, as the Biden administration identifies them? Fascinating, fascinating discussions they have over there. Here's something that um, John Heilman may not have considered, that uh, opposition to Trump's impeachment and conviction may not have that much to do with Trump among many of the 74 million Americans who voted for Trump. Maybe it's a recognition that uh, the impeachment trial is just as much about them and their support of Trump as it is Trump himself. Maybe they see people like John Heilman conflating people who committed acts of violence on January 6th with anybody and everybody who's ever supported Trump. Maybe they see organizations like the Lincoln Project making a list of former Trump administration officials so that they can try and put pressure on any institution that might employ them to not employ them. Maybe that's what they see. And maybe very much like 2016, Trump was a vessel to rebuke this, to borrow a word, autocratic political class, at least in terms of impulse. Maybe this is yet another opportunity to send the same message to the John Heilmans of the world because they didn't seem to get the message the first time around. Maybe it's that. Maybe they're not morons. For more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Brett Baer, Fox News anchor and number one bestselling author of Three Days at the Brink, FDR's daring gamble to win World War II. So I'm I'm not uh, feeling the uh, unity that was advertised from the Biden administration quite yet. (laughs) I think um, I have not found anybody. Democrat or Republican, who doesn't call what happened on January 6th heinous. It does have a feeling of a lot of pundits and Democratic lawmakers kind of putting everybody in a basket of deplorables and having that kind of broad brush. I agree with you. And I think it's fascinating to watch the politics of this. You know, there is a side that can defend that the process was quick and did not go through the regular chain, thereby lead to a vote of no. But the presentation they've made has been compelling, and today the Trump legal team gets to put on their side. Well, just with respect to that, I mean, uh, to, to your point, uh, Jonathan Turley on uh, your colleague Sean Hannity's program last night, you know, George Washington law professor, um, willing to be as critical of Trump as he is of Democrats based on, you know, the legal issue being debated at any particular time, said, look, they didn't make out their case. Their uh, presentation was long on emotion and very short on evidence. And that's a problem. Making out your case is sort of the demand of this process. And you have somebody like Jonathan Turley say, you know, just they didn't make out their case. So I guess Jonathan Turley is now a insurrectionist sympathizer, according to them. Yeah, exactly. So, listen, because they did the one count, they have to be able to prove the one count. And that's what the legal eagles are looking at, saying, did you get there? You could have done a number of different counts. And you probably could have made the case a little bit better on other possibilities. But this is what you chose to do. So that's part of this, too. You know, you were talking about the Lincoln Project. I saw on Twitter somebody said that they could be the Michael Avenatti of this year, (laughs) you know, because now they've got their own problems. When the Associated Press does a long, in-depth story, investigative piece about what you knew, when you knew it, and who knew what went, 
and you call the AP an attack from Trump world, you have issues. Um, I wanted to get uh, your take on another story that broke yesterday. I was just thumbing through the pages of this uh, compelling read. It's uh, American Crisis, uh, Leadership Lessons from the COVID-19 Pandemic. The author is Governor Andrew Cuomo. I couldn't find in that book, maybe I didn't read carefully enough, where a lying to the public about the state's nursing home death toll is uh, a lesson in leadership in managing a pandemic. It's an amazing story leading to deaths that were exponentially more than the state said they were. For all the people like Janice Dean and others who were saying this is happening, they were just shunned. You know, he wrote the book. He was doing the funny back and forth with his brother on CNN. It really is a media story, too. It's pretty amazing. Hmm. Not to belabor the point, but the Associated Press has chimed in with its own piece talking about um, the number of uh, individuals admitted to nursing homes after being infected was 40 percent higher than the state department of health reported and i i just wonder you know a reckoning i mean this is perhaps not something you'll comment on the way i'm going to comment on it but if you want to see policy change from these lockdown states then there needs to be some sort of political reckoning the public needs to say in, in no uncertain terms that we disagree with the policies you pursued what you promised they deliver versus what they delivered and that's movement is afoot right now in california with the possibility of a recall election on gavin newsom but maybe there needs to be a legal reckoning too what's going on here and they were worried about making information public that could be used that would be incriminating could be used by the department of justice potentially to, to have somebody say we, we don't want to be forthright because we're worried about present we're worried about giving uh, federal prosecutors incriminating evidence suggests that there should be more legal inquiry in addition to just sort of political inquiry in terms of what happened in New York State. No, you're right, and I think this will open the door. I think to other things, whether it is DOJ, which is unlikely in the current environment or the state, which is more likely. But it's not the end of this story. And I do think it tells us a lot about covering this stuff. Kudos to the AP for doing the piece. I think that there is a realization in the AP that they need to get as tough or at least look like it as they were with President Trump's administration. And uh, it's one of the few you know, mainstream media outlets that's doing that. Uh, before I let you go, I wanted to uh, mention uh, this uh, charity event that you're part of, again, hosting this year. It's a virtual event this year, unlike it normally is with uh, an in-person event for obvious reasons. But uh, tell us about uh, this event to raise money for Children's Hospital. Yeah, Children's National. It's called All-Star Panel Event, and you can get there by allstarpanelevent.com. It's going to be tomorrow night. You can stream it any time after that. It's a great show if you have an hour. There's a panel, Brian Kilmeade, Charles Payne, Shannon Bream, Emily Campagno, and me talking about all kinds of things, taking questions. And then Rascal Flats performs, all kinds of little surprises along the way. But it's a great show if you have time over the weekend. And there's a live silent auction that started Wednesday. It's ongoing now. You can get there on the website, allstarpanelevent.com, and raising money for children's. There's all kinds of Zoom calls, Greg Gutfeld, Zoom, and uh, his books signed for you. Uh, there's um, Jim Nance will do your voicemail message on your cell phone. You've got all kinds of uh, chefs, like world-renowned chefs will do cooking classes, and there's memorabilia. There are golf rounds. Check it out. There's some really good stuff. What does, like, can I get, like, Nance get me onto Augusta? Is that one of them? That one's a little tougher. I think he's just going to do your voicemail. Okay. He's just doing your voicemail. Yeah, that's fair. You know, we, we'll work up from the voicemail. 
Yeah, yeah. We'll work out from the voicemail. I'll, yeah, yeah, I'll serve and it's in also going to be broadcast yeah. on Fox Nation, by the way, So uh, over the weekend. So Fox Nation or allstarpanelevent.com, and you can get there. Uh, the live auction goes until Monday the 15th. 100% of the proceeds go directly to Children's National Hospital, allstarpanelevent.com, and you can view items or donate by texting ALLSTAR to 72727, 72727. Brett Baer hosts a special report, Fox News Channel, as well as uh, the author of that uh, bestseller on FDR. Brett, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks, Black. seat and sharpen your pencils class is in session with professor dan proft and the dan proft show welcome back to the dan proft show and uh, just a quick follow-up comment to the conversation with brett bear and his uh, take on the crack up of the lincoln project that's going on couldn't happen to a uh, better group of vile, vile, craven, hypocritical creeps, really. John Weaver and the boys over there. And now you've got infighting from their, you know, there's some former consultant, Jennifer Horn, that worked for them, and George Conway saying, take this tweet down because it's potentially a violation of federal law. But hey, Conway left the Lincoln Project back in the fall. He left the Lincoln Project in name because of the agreement Kelly and Conway would leave the. Trump administration and he'd leave the Lincoln Project for the good of their family. But he continued to uh, contribute spewage to the Lincoln Project's perspective. By the way, an additional report out, too, of the $90 million the Lincoln Project raised, $50 million of that went to firms controlled by Lincoln Project founders. You know, the former McCain and Bush-type consultants. I mean, it's just, they're, they're, it's just a reprehensible group. That, uh, again, like the left, because they are the left, cloak themselves in honor. These are the great uh, guardians of the republic. Nonsense. They're craven hacks who weren't getting their meal ticket punched, and they saw an opportunity to do so in spectacular fashion by aligning with the left. Speaking of um, the left, uh, a comment or two on uh, the week that was an impeachment trial 2.0 and the presentation by House Democrat Socialists of their case-in-chief to the extent that what they presented over 16 hours even warrants that, the second eight hours being a a rinse and repeat of the first eight. Uh, Jonathan Turley uh, was on with uh, Hannity last night and uh, offered his take on the quality of the case that was presented by House Democrat Socialist managers. He uh, also uh, wrote an op-ed on it basically saying what I've been saying, which is, Long on emotion, short on evidence. But he picked up on something else that I think uh, bears repeating within your social circles. Ask this question and see what kind of response you get for people that are sort of knee-jerk in in support of uh, the conviction, the impeachment and conviction because they don't like Trump. Standard free, doesn't matter. A bad thing happened. Trump is a bad man. Therefore, the bad man is responsible for the bad thing. The quality of that thinking which is unfortunately ubiquitous. Turley asks, uh, hmm, you know, why not go to the sources to confirm what you suggest was the 
mens rea of Trump, what his motives were, what the decision making was and the context. Why not go to people that were around him when those decisions were being made, not just on January 6th, but per your own argument in the weeks leading up to January 6th, weeks that included his authorization of 10,000 National Guardsmen per his former chief of staff, Mark Meadows, if the Capitol Police wanted them for January 6th. Why no witnesses? So why wouldn't the House want to lock in the testimony and get direct evidence as to what the president was doing and saying during this period? And that it really became quite glaring today. When you had the House manager say, look, we have the evidence of the state of mind of Trump, but then they played four years of speeches and other controversies. At one point, it sounded like they were saying that he was responsible for the kidnap uh, conspiracy of, of Governor Whitmer. And what you're seeing there thinking is like, well, well, you just impeached him for incitement to insurrection, not negligence, not for being a lousy person. You, you impeached him because you said that he was trying to incite an actual rebellion. That's in the article of impeachment, the 14th Amendment's language of an actual rebellion. So you dug a very deep hole that's a lot to fill in the Senate, but they didn't really try. And the question is, why? Why wouldn't you want to marshal that evidence? So in the end, they, they wrapped up with very little hard evidence on Trump's intent or purpose or state of mind. Right. Why wouldn't you want to marshal that evidence? Maybe because there's no evidence to marshal. I mean, what else could it be? Or you don't want to put in the work, I guess, would be the best uh, explanation one could offer. Why wouldn't you want to marshal that evidence? You're spiking evidence. You really don't actually want to uh, convict. You don't want to cast Trump in the, the worst light. You you don't want to throw him out because you want to make a 14th Amendment action as, as being kicked around to uh, try and bar, from, bar him from public office after his acquittal so that you can keep him in the headlines and use him as a unifying figure for the left? I'm, I don't know. That seems to be uh, a bit Rube Goldberg-esque in terms of the political capital you think you're you, the, the, the most political capital you think you can gain with pursuing this path. And by the way, in lieu of evidence, in lieu of uh, any witness testimony, direct evidence, as Professor Turley said, you did have Jamie Raskin, Harvard Law, say exactly what Turley said. It seemed like he was saying, no, he, he was saying it. He was saying they played you know clips from Trump rallies. That it was months of cultivating America's most dangerous extremist groups. Months. But it was an incitement to riot on the day of. Hmm. Arguing in the alternative is a fun law school experiment. It doesn't make for such a compelling case. And uh, Raskin implied exactly that. That he, in fact, was responsible. This is part of the record of Trump inciting violence. Is this comment you're about to hear from a rally in which he referenced... Uh, Governor Whitmer in response to people chanting, lock her up. Trump openly joked with the crowd about critics saying his words had provoked the violent plot against Governor Whitmer. Check it out. It's telling. We got to get her going. I don't think she likes me too much. See, I don't comment on that because every time if I make just even a little bit of a nod, they say the president led them on. No, you, I don't have to lead you on. It's, it's very telling of what? 
Even uh, as Raskin concedes, joking with the crowd, it's very telling of what that uh, he inspired the kidnapping plot of the Ava Perone of East Lansing. What, what, I mean, it's this is these are laughable hyperbolic claims. The only person more ridiculous than Raskin this week has been Ted Lieu, who pretends he has some you know, third eye insight into Trump's thinking on these matters. And of course, it's always thinking of a nefarious sort, which is very convenient for the position that Ted Lieu and House Democrat Socialist managers have taken. And uh, it's an easy way for them, at least with respect to media scrutiny, to avoid having to support their case with anything other than their intuition. In sum, the week that was an impeachment trial 2.0, I'll cede my time to Josh Howley. I think what we're watching is a total kangaroo court. It is an illegitimate proceeding. It is unconstitutional. If you want to see the proof of that, Harris, just look at what happened last night when Senator Mike Lee pointed out that the House managers had blatantly misquoted him. He tried to get it stricken from the record, and what ensued was chaos on the Senate floor as Senator Leahy first ordered a vote, then stopped the vote in the middle because Chuck Schumer intervened to ask him, oh, wait a minute, wait a minute, don't, don't do the vote. Total chaos and pandemonium. They are making this up as they go along. Yes, this is all uh, exquisitely executed choreography by House Democrat Socialist Managers has been the dominant narrative from the corporate media this week, or they're making it up as they go along. I- I'm inclined to agree with Senator Howley that it's the latter. This is the Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Unfortunately, Black History Month, rather than celebrating the achievements of black Americans, celebrating what uh, so many black Americans have overcome, as well as remembering and uh, discussing the uh, inhumane, barbaric practices in this country against black Americans, not just slavery and not just Jim Crow, but general uh, discrimination, marginalization, like having a real uh, direct, honest conversation that's holistic in scope about uh, race in America. No, can't do that. Have to be focused on uh, racial equity, which is a synonym for outcome as it's employed by the cultural Marxists and Black Lives Matter and elsewhere. I tell you, equality of outcome becomes quite elusive. There was a good Wall Street Journal editorial on the topic, just one example. New report from the New York Fed shows how a central bank focus on racial equity could make the problem worse, make the outcomes more disparate. The paper, Monetary Policy and Racial Inequality, looked at the asset portfolios of black and white Americans models the impact of Fed rate cuts on wealth and labor market outcomes by race. If uh, you're only focused on the race gaps in the labor market, which is where the Biden administration is, then easy money is modestly egalitarian. The research finds black unemployment rate falls by two-tenths of a percentage point more than the white unemployment rate. Yet the effect on wealth is much larger as lower rates push investors into equity, seeing higher rates of return. The same shock 
easy money, puts up, pushes up stock prices by as much as 5% and house prices by over 2% over a five-year period. Because of the racial gaps in asset ownership, this translates into a 20 to 30% annual income bump for white households compared to a 10% bump for black households. This is the dilemma. Rate cuts intended to boost earnings for workers on the margins of the labor market also spur higher asset prices and so increase the chasm between black and white. Oh, there's something else that's not contemplated by the research. The coming financial reckoning for profligate a modern monetary theory is that when there is an economic downturn, those people on the lower rungs are going to be hit the hardest. When inflation comes, those people on the lower rungs are going to be hit the hardest. They spend a greater percentage of their disposable income, their household income, really, on uh, essentials than, say, do the, the, upper middle, uh, the upper middle income as well as the wealthier families in America. For more on all of this racial equity versus racial equality, how we went from the latter to the former and the implications during Black History Month, pleased to be joined again by our friend Will Riley, who is a professor of political science, associate professor of political science at Kentucky State University, historically black college, and author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thanks for being with us again. Appreciate it. Yeah, Dan, thanks for uh, having me back on. Isn't it an interesting study coming from the New York Fed? It sort of speaks to this um, uh, perhaps fool's errand, uh, I'll describe it, as trying to affect equality of outcome, whether it's black versus white or any other group by a particular identity versus any other group by a particular identity. Yeah, I mean, I think this gets into the extreme difficulty of making the world perfect. So, I mean, you know, banter banter aside, we saw this with the COVID-19 vaccine, right? The original plan was to give it to seniors. And that seems extraordinarily obvious to me. And in fact, most states have quietly moved back toward that. I mean, the average age of a COVID victim is 81, 82. Um, But there was opposition because seniors tend to be a disproportionately white population. And the claim was that we should prioritize, quote unquote, essential workers who are a more diverse group, many uh, African-Americans, many Latinos, many recent immigrants. Um, and this was to be done in the service of equity. And a lot of people, including Bob Woodson from uh, 1776, pointed out that this would mean more dead black people, because it turns out that more than 11 percent of seniors are still African-American. So if old people had to wait longer to get the jab, there would unfortunately be more deaths. Whereas virtually none of the young, healthy, essential workers in retail or trade like construction, in all honesty, would die of COVID. So when we actually look at these attempts to kind of have the state step in and stabilize the workings of the world, very often what we find is that the world is complex. I I listened to your intro and yeah, if you target, if you set policies designed to help low wage workers build capital or make just a little more, perhaps get jobs, those are also going to boost the value of assets like houses that wealthier people own. So, I mean, in reality, my default take almost is that the government should stay out of a lot of this, you know, enforce laws against actual racism and let the market work, let people compete. Uh, When we come back with uh, Professor Will Riley, I want to talk about uh, his piece at Spiked Online, uh, considering the premise from so much of our culture in this Black History Month and every month, frankly, when it comes to race relations is systemic racism exists in America. I'll be interested to hear uh, why Will Riley thinks that that is a conspiracy theory. More with uh, Will Riley when we return.
listen, the more you'll know. This is this is the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Will Riley. He's an associate professor of poli sci at Kentucky State University, historically a black college, and author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. And uh, Will, uh, your provocative new piece posted over at Spiked Online, you suggest uh, something that is taken in a, as a given in most of our elite cultural and certainly academic circles is, in fact, a conspiracy theory. Systemic racism is a conspiracy theory, you argue. In general, don't disagree with that. So a conspiracy theory in political science is a widely believed, influential set of false facts. And the idea of sort of sweeping systemic racism, which we hear about from Ibram Kendi, Robin D'Angelo, so on, is very bluntly the idea that any disparity in performance between large groups can really only be due to one of two things, either inferiority on the part of one of the groups or to some kind of significant discrimination, no matter how well hidden. That's the idea of systemic racism, that disparities themselves show potent discrimination. And what economists like Thomas Sowell and June O'Neill have pointed out is that there's a third option here, that groups that vary in terms of something as important or at least as notable as race or sex also vary in terms of a whole bunch of other things. This idea that a disparity between blacks and whites in police shootings or in police stops has to be due to racism has to be tested by looking at what the crime rate is for those groups, bluntly. The the point about systemic racism is that just looking at differences between people and saying that there's some hidden force in our society, that some anger has survived since slavery or redlining survives on the margins or something like that, that's a testable theory. And when you test it, it's often wrong. Well, and the, the other often pointed out aspect of the systemic racism discussion is these systems that are systemically racist and these places uh, with systems that are systemically racist, whether it's police or other institutions, uh, who's in charge of them? So, you know, if you tell me that Chicago is a system is a city that is grappling with systemic racism, then you have to explain to me how 100 years of one party rule and, and more recently uh, significant uh, time spans of African-Americans in positions of authority, elected officials and appointed officials in senior positions, how they're perpetuating a system of systemic racism. I mean, this was the point that Walter Williams was want to make. You know, there has been an explosion, uh, exponential increase in the number of black Americans who are uh, public office holders between, say, the 60s and the 21st century. And yet in so many of those uh, places where those individuals, black Americans, are in public office, conditions have actually worsened for black Americans. So black Americans are perpetuating systemic racism against black Americans? That's a good way of phrasing it, but there are, there are a lot of tough questions here. I mean, an, an even more obvious one would be, why are so many of the people that are most successful in society not white, if you're looking at the systemic right. racism uh, paradigm? So, I mean, the highest earning income group in the country is Indian Americans. The uh, highest earning white income group is almost certainly Jews, who obviously have a history of prejudice. Asian Americans outperform whites, Nigerian Americans outperform whites. I'm not mocking whites here, but it's very hard to explain this if your claim is that something like the SAT math board is institutional prejudice, quote-unquote, against minorities. Generally, the response to this from people on the woke side is just to redefine racism. The claim would be that the systemic racism is that African-Americans are more likely to be poor in Chicago today and thus more likely to go to below-par schools 
because black people had to move to the north with very few possessions in the 30s and 40s because the south was racist during that era and so on down the line. So this is all one continuing system of racism. But to me, I mean, this is, this is redefining a word into meaningless. Racism is disliking people because of their race. The, the fact that we are more likely to be working class because of, you know, lost race wars a hundred years ago to be only a little glib, that, that's not racism in any real sense of that term. We should help the poor, of course. Uh, I wanted to, uh, speaking of police, you mentioned one of those institutions, as did I. Um, this uh, new study that was published this week in Science, the journal Science, uh, co-authored uh, in part by uh, Dean Knox, a uh, professor at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, uh, looked at uh, 1.6 million enforcements by nearly 7,000 officers in the city of Chicago between the years 2012 and 2015. Over the course of 100 shifts, black officers made on average about 16 fewer stops and two fewer arrests uh, as compared to white officers in comparable scenarios. Uh, Professor Knox saying, we see two groups of officers going out and they're treating the same group of civilians differently. It's troubling. This disparity most pronounced in majority black neighborhoods, according to the researchers. And um, uh, the suggestion is that, uh, of course, um, increasing the diversity of police forces like Chicago would uh, change the nature of uh, policing in a particular city and be more fair to minorities. Uh, now, again, this is 2012 to 2015, so the author suggests, you know, this doesn't contemplate uh, whatever reforms have been taken in the last uh, five years or so. But it seems to me there's some other infirmities with this study, starting from the, the premise that black, a, a uh, black officer, white officer, both stopping uh, a, a black civilian in uh, different parts of the city, all black civilians are the same just because they have race in common, that that stop that was made by a black officer is necessarily comparable to the stop that was made by a white officer. But I just wanted to get your general reaction to uh, the uh, top-line results of this study. Well, I think my reaction, first of all, is that I'd want to see what the effect on crime was. I mean, so it strikes me offhand, just off the top of the head, as at least a bit controversial to say that it's good for the police to make fewer stops and arrest fewer people. Mm. Um, you know, Chicago officers are paid pretty well. The question might be, well, what do the police do in that case? Um, I think that's, I think the result is an interesting one. I mean, obviously the argument that's going to be made is, well, black officers are more sensitive to the feelings and needs of the community. But I also think you would find that if black officers had made more stops, the headline would be coming from you know, that center-left academy today, look, black cops are more effective. So I, I do think black cops might have a more laid-back approach in black neighborhoods. My real question about whether that's good or bad would be, do more police stops correlate with less crime or with more crime if you're talking about petty stops? And until we know that, I don't really have, I don't have the definitive response to that piece. Well, let's hold it right there, and when we want to come back. I want to tackle the issue of... Uh communities and institutions that are supposedly suffering under systemic racism while being led by black Americans. More with Kentucky State poli-sci professor Will Riley right after this.
thetoughshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. We're speaking with Will Riley, professor of poli-sci at Kentucky State University. And before the break, we're talking about uh, claims of racism in large institutions and I would add uh, big cities that uh, are substantially comprised of minorities, both in terms of population, in terms of percentage of the workforce, and also led by minorities and black Americans. So it's a little bit of sort of what uh, the, the... the woke do with respect to historic injustices, everybody agrees were historic injustices, as opposed to what the reality on the ground is today. And they sort of like to conflate those two time periods, don't they? This is extraordinarily common. This is actually something I see a lot as a debater. If you bring up something like, well, for the past 40 years, you know, the most successful groups in the country have been Nigerians and Jews. I mean, the, the default response is very often something like, but remember Tulsa in 1921. And the reality is no one denies that the Tulsa race massacre was terrible or that slavery was bad or something like that. But that's very often not relevant to what we're talking about today. What we're talking about today is a series of technical empirical questions like are white and black officers patrolling the same neighborhoods if we're talking about a force that's half people of color. And very often the person with kind of the woke position doesn't really want to take it there. So I think I think if you went across a series of cities and you looked at a series of officers, you'd find a bunch of this kind of thing, a 10% advantage one way or a 20% advantage the other way. Uh, that's what Roland Fryer found when he looked at police brutality. He found that uh, Caucasians were about 20% more likely to be shot and killed. Black people were about 16% more likely to be, for example, beaten or unnecessarily handcuffed. And my take from that is it doesn't look like there's a pattern of brutality really against either race. It looks like you've got some brutal cops out there. But uh, nuance isn't really featured in our sort of public <laughs> shouting on cable news debate. <laughs> That's an understatement. And Roland Fryer, uh, the Harvard academic, is is, is black, and, and he, he talks about uh, the results of uh, his research that suggests, you know, I went into it uh, believing the opposite of what my research told me is true. So it's not like he was trying to, uh, uh, you know, uh, find a rationale for a preordained conclusion is quite the opposite. Uh, Just a a, a question sort of in terms of uh, assessing uh, the understanding. I think most common sense people want uh, people to get along, people of different races and different everything to get along. So why is it that the, the cultural Marxist Black Lives Matter crowd is and, and so many politicians as well, I guess, who, who more or less fit into that crowd? Why is it that they want America to be forever 1963 Selma? Because their money-making structure is based on 1963 Selma. I'll I'll just openly say that. You're absolutely right. I mean, the percentage of marriages right now, they're interracial, is around 25%. But that general model, um, Southern Poverty Law Center, um, ACLU out there now, standing up for trans rights and women's athletics, that whole model depends on the idea that there is still this continued abuse. And it's, it's hard to deny that. He is Will Riley, Associate Professor of Political Science at Kentucky State University, author of Hate Crime Hoax, How the Left is Selling a Fake Race War. Will, thanks as always for being with us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Take care. This is the Dan Proft Show. The world is a complicated place. You need someone to expose the political fakers. 
fixers and takers and to cut through the mindless chatter and misdirection to help you make sense of it all. That person is Dan Proft. And this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to The Dan Proft Show. Please follow us at danproftshow.com and on social media at danproftshow. And uh, I must admit, I've sort of fallen off this story. I assumed that Obama land would break ground at some time in the not-too-distant future. You know, all of the, the rhetorical back and forth and even some of the lawsuits that were filed were just sort of futile pro forma exercises to register disagreement with the expropriation of public land the way that it's being done in Chicago for Obama land, Jackson Park area. But I, I guess I failed to consider something. And that something is that um, Richard Epstein is involved in this litigation that's still pending. If Richard Epstein is involved, I wouldn't want to be on the other side, even if you're a compliant political class in, in the city of Chicago and the state of Illinois trying to move this along to uh, memorialize the Obama presidency for all to see. Richard Epstein, uh, one of the uh, best legal minds in the world, sent a, a note outlining just how potentially complicated this all really is, the infirmities that the city may have and the park district may have with respect to how this is supposed to proceed, at least according to them and the Obamas, with respect to federal law dealing with historical preservation, environmental protection, transportation. Well, let's hear the case. This is very interesting. I've heard a, recently from a lot of people, I don't know, that maybe this is just serendipitous, but Wait, what is the deal with that Obama presidential library or Obama land, as I call it? Is that, is that happening? Is that going to break ground? When's that supposed to be up? I, people have asked recently. Richard Epstein is the Peter and Kirsten Bedford Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, the Lawrence A. Tisch Professor of Law at NYU Law School, Senior Lecturer at University of Chicago, been at University of Chicago a long time. And uh, as much as I'd like to plumb the depths of his legal mind over impeachment, uh, we've talked a lot about impeachments. So let's talk about this rather intriguing case. Professor Epstein, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate oh, it's it. very nice to be here. Let me just start with the first point, which is every administrative decision uh, that is made under the environmental statutes is subject to some kind of review. Uh, there are three statutes involved, one with transportation, which requires the approval of the Secretary of Transportation based upon the reports received, uh, but they're very limited in the way in which you could give it. You have to make it very clear that this is the only way in which you could do something, and you have to consider under the statute three levels of care in following order. First, you must ask whether or not it's possible to avoid the damage to the environment by putting the roads in various places. Secondly, you have to figure out whether there's a way to minimize these particular losses. And third, there's a way to mitigate it. And as you can see, the first one is the biggest disruption, the second, the middle-sized one, and the third is the baby bear. And during the course of these hearings, it was said we don't have to consider the question of avoidance or mitigation at all uh, because the city has complete jurisdiction to decide to close four roads decide to knock down a thousand trees and to put up this huge structure right next to the lagoon and that there's nothing the federal government can do about it. There has never been a case, and there are many, many cases, in which this claim of city autonomy or local autonomy has ever been established. And you look at the papers that the government submitted in all three of these reports, they do not cite or quote the statute, they do not cite or quote the regulations, they do not cite or quote any particular case that supports their particular position. And so it is not very difficult to put something together to say that this thing is fundamentally flawed, because what they did is they took a unified project, namely cutting down 
down everything and putting up something in its place and saying there are two projects. One is destroying everything and the second one is putting it back and we can't look at the destruction. And so what we will do is we will prepare letters to the Secretary of Transportation explaining why it's inappropriate and file challenges in court saying that the disclosures and the evaluations that they have to make under these statutes of environment, the so-called NEPA Act, National Environmental Policy Act of 1969 and the Historical Preservation Act, um, they just fall short. Uh, so uh, these are lengthy proceedings, but uh, you cannot decide to do any construction whatsoever so long as there's any appeal going in any case. Yeah, so okay, if I can ahead. interrupt, let, let me just ask you. So uh, obviously you're with the Biden administration and uh, cabinet mem- his cabinet members in charge of these federal agencies that are relevant. I expect you don't expect relief from Secretary of Transportation Buttigieg, for example, So the court challenges, just remind us where these court challenges stand and why they have been unsuccessful so far, the decisions that have been rendered in these matters so far. The decisions that have made have never been made with respect to the three federal statutes that I'm talking about. They were made with respect to the claims brought under the public trust doctrine. But it's important to understand the grounds on which the case was lost. It was not lost on the merits, which says that you can't bring it again. There was a decision written by then-Judge Amy Barrett, a unanimous which said that we did not have standing to bring this case because we could not show that we had a concrete and particularized interest, given the fact that the only interest that we had was an undivided interest that the public under Illinois state law has in all of its public lands. That means, in effect, you're free to file the case again and to do it. And we expect to be able to file that case and to get a very much more receptive hearing than we got the first time when Judge Blakely heard the case because he was very, very limited on the amount of depositions and inquiries that he allowed before he made a summary judgment against us on what we said at the time were flawed grounds. How do you get around the standing issue this time then? Well, what happens is there are one of two ways to get around it. You can file it in state court, or you can file, change the pleading in federal court so as to allege particularized interest for individuals who use the park, which was not done the first time, or you can claim that there's supplemental jurisdiction. So uh, the thing can be refiled again in either state or federal form, and it can be filed either as a separate action changing the pleading, or it can be filed as a joint action. This is not a case which by any means is over, and the thing to understand is so long as this litigation is ongoing, it turns out that there can be no construction that takes place unless you want to risk very major public fines and so forth. So those trees are going to stand until this is done, and I think we will win on the merits of all of these cases. And if uh, we were talking about the Ronald Reagan Presidential Library or Ronald Reagan Land, of course, the city would be making the very same arguments against it that you're making uh, with respect to Obama Land in terms of who's really would be interested in playing politics here. But I wonder with what you were describing there, Jackson Park versus Washington Park, Have there been any recent uh, settlement conferences on the topic? No. I mean, it turns out that there really can't be any settlement conference whatsoever unless they're prepared to move. There was an earlier effort, which uh, I was not involved in. There's something known as the Jackson Park Watch, which tried to talk to the administrator, to the Obama Foundation and to the city. And they did propose a minimization program, one that I oppose. And I said, look, we don't have to close Cornell Drive. What we could do is we could reduce it to four lanes. Uh, we don't have to put the Obama presidential tower smack dab where it is next to the Griffin Museum, because you could put it a little bit further south and make sure that you don't have to close the midway uh, going east towards Lakeshore Drive, which is what this does. You don't have to have this building at 235 feet high. 
could have it at 70 feet high and so forth. Those proposals were all given and they were all categorically rejected. And this would be my reaction. If I were offered, even from the Obama's point of view, basically a free hand to develop a first-class site outside of Washington Park or take this truncated version, which is going to be highly expensive to do, I would certainly take the Washington Park site. In fact, the statesmanlike thing for the president to do is to confess error and to move quickly to take another site because these objections are not going away. They're not fictitious. Um, if you start looking at the way in which the decisions were decided, you will see that on the merits, the only decision that was made against us was by Blakely in the court below on the public trust doctrine. And his attitude was that the doctrine was completely toothless. He said, so long as you got all the I's and all the T's and the authorization statements from the city council, you've met your public trust requirement, which meant that there are no fiduciary duties at all. Uh, but normally when you start talking about a fiduciary, either a public or a private one, they have to manage a public public property with care, and that obligation resides on the city, whether it gives it to the park department or to the city council, and you can't dissipate an asset by giving it away to somebody for a tiny fraction of its fair market value, and they've been in violation of both of those requirements. It's only if you state the public trust doctrine, as Blakely stated, so as to make it worthless in every case, that you can be in compliance with it, because I can draft any papers I want uh, which will say that I can do this. I can make things clear, but you cannot, by making things clear, make them right, given the fact that this doctrine is the other way. So there was a case called Pepke, which said we have to allow these challenges, because otherwise the doctrine is going to be utterly vacuous. And he did not quote that language when he wrote his decision, and I can assure you it's something which is at the center of our particular case. The Illinois State Supreme Court said, if this is public lands, people have a right to make sure that the public officials discharge their public obligations, and they can't do that if nobody has standing to bring a suit against them. Now, federal rules standings are different from state law standing doctrine, which is where this case got held up the first time around. But in terms of the underlying substantive merits, there certainly will be a forum before which these issues can be put forward in the way which has been authorized by the Illinois Supreme Court. He is Professor Richard Epstein. I wouldn't want to go up against him in court. Good grief. Peter and Kirsten Bedford, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, Lawrence A. Tisch Professor at NYU Law and a Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. The uh, Obamaland uh, legal team better uh, gird their loins. Professor Epstein, thanks so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. and sharpen your pencils. Class is in session with Professor Dan Proft and the Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. Returning to uh, the topic of uh, COVID-19 generally, one of the um, under-discussed aspects of uh, the Trump administration policy and personnel was in the area of mental health. And this is uh, writ large. It's not specifically or exclusively to COVID-19, but it certainly includes those who have been um, adversely impacted in terms of their mental health because of lockdown policies and so forth. Interesting piece by Sally Sattel in uh, National Review about uh, the Trump administration's mental health reforms, which I, I don't think have gotten much discussion really at all. Dr. Sally Sattel is a resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute and a visiting professor of psychiatry at the Columbia University Vigelos School of Medicine. Dr. Sattel, thanks so much for joining us again. Appreciate it. 
Thank you. Could detail some of those uh, mental health advances that were affected under President Trump. Yes, this is through an agency that not many people have heard of. It's part of HHS, and the specific agency is called the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. It's been around since 1992, but under President Trump was the first time it actually had a psychiatrist as its director, which says a lot. I mean, you would think that an agency devoted to people with mental illness and addiction would have a doctor in charge, and this was the first time it did. And her name was Dr. Eleanor McCants-Katz. What she did was pay much overdue attention to, to three main problems, really talking about severe mental illness, schizophrenia, bipolar illness, very severe depression. One is that there were not enough inpatient beds, So if you went to a hospital, you might wait in the emergency room for up to a week and then be discharged often before you're ready. Second, the number of people with mental illness who are in jails and prisons, overcrowding those institutions when they should be getting help instead. And the third is that so many people with severe illness, they need so much assistance and going from one agency to another didn't work that well. So what she did was uh, develop a number of programs and strengthen others that help people in those populations. But as that pertains to COVID-19, I mean, there is a a lot of uh, research that suggests being without work increases the risk factor for clinical depression in addition to anxiety, suicide, substance abuse, premature death. Uh, So does isolation and loneliness uh, lead to worsening mental conditions. And so so there is a nexus here with COVID-19 policy. There is. To be fair, uh, what you're talking about is is a very significant but, uh, you know, acute problem with uh, the mental health in in the nation. And to be fair, there's a fair amount of public money going to uh, helplines and going to therapy and and funding telehealth because a lot of people can't come in to see a doctor. And so I think relative emergency sense, there was and and would have been, no matter who was the president, a fair amount of help going to these folks. Now, for so many of them, unfortunately, the real help is economic rejuvenation for so many. But as you say, the isolation and the deaths that many will encounter and people and their families, maybe themselves being ill and having long COVID that it's caused with residual problems, you know, all definitely leads to stress and to development of depression and anxiety and suicidality and an increase in substance abuse, especially for people who were struggling with those problems before. So that's true. What was so innovative, though, about Trump administration in this specific regard and why we wrote the article, I wrote it with Dr. Fuller-Torrey, is because these were, were longstanding problems of not paying enough attention to people who are in the system for years because they have chronic illnesses, which, which is somewhat different from the COVID situation, which is more, more acute and more, you know, more time limited. But they're both serious problems. Similar to uh, the story of uh, individuals, particularly as they age out of the system with uh, severe developmental disabilities, physical and, and intellectual disabilities, in the sense that you have uh, a federal footprint and you have a state and local footprint. It seems to me what you're indicating is the uh, direction the federal agency takes informs how state and local agencies approach uh, the problem as well and and approach the treatment of these individuals. And so, you know, it can have a positive effect if you're for doing it right and that uh, provides some leadership at the state and local level, or it can have 
a negative effect because you have a bit of follow the leader because you're following where the money is flowing to from the federal to state and local. Exactly. I was going to add that last part, which is key, not just the philosophy, which you're right, is in and of itself has an influence, but it's the fact that these states depend on the block grants that come from this agency to run their departments of mental health and provide services. So, right, even though it's a relatively small agency, and in fact, the part of the agency, SAMHSA, that I mentioned before, that has control over mental illness is only $1.5 billion, which is relatively nothing on a federal level. But because, as you say, because it sets the tone and because it supplies the money and it also provides guidance on certain treatments, some of which are less science-based than others, another thing that Dr. McCann's cats tried to change, they have disproportionate impact. And you're talking about, I mean, give us a sense of the scope of the population we're talking about, too, not just those that are mentally, have a chronic mental illness, as you were describing, but also those, you know, who have a chronic mental illness such that, uh, you know, family cannot take care of them. The needs are just too great. That's between about three to five percent people between, um, again, the two major psychotic illnesses are chronic psychotic illnesses are schizophrenia and bipolar. So it's that's about the number for those, but they comprise they represent um, about 15 percent of state prison inmates and 20 percent of jail inmates. And in fact, Cook County is considered the largest mental facility in Chicago. And same with Rikers, and the same with um, L.A. County Jail. That's it has more psychiatric patients in it than than any of the states than any of the facilities in those states. And and when and you know in terms of just how that's counted, you know, I'm always a bit, uh, I don't want to say suspicious of uh, government stats, but I'll say suspicious of government stats anyway. Um, that that is not people self-identifying. These are people who have been clinically diagnosed. They're not doing that to try to uh, reduce their sentence or to try to get out of prison and into a, a mental facility. This is people who've been chronic, have been been medically diagnosed by a professional such as yourself as having this chronic mental illness. Yeah, and you're wise to be skeptical, but but I have a lot of confidence in that, especially because it's also uh, these are also data that are um, uh, disseminated by a group called the Treatment Advocacy Center, which is private. It's in um, Arlington, Virginia, and they're devoted to the care of the um, severely mentally ill. And um, you know, some people would say that advocates like to expand, the, you know, inflate the number of people who need them. But um, but actually, sometimes you can dilute the effect when you do that. So um, th- those are reliable numbers. And in fact, in some of these facilities, it can be, you know, up, up to 50% at some point. And again, we're right, we're not talking about depression. I mean, almost anybody in a in a jail setting is acutely depressed and anxious. There are horrible environments. And often there's so much additional drug use on top of, um, uh, you know, on, on top of uh, uh, one's, you know, mood or anxiety problem that, um, you know, it just, and people are going through withdrawal in jail. So there's, yes, there are a lot of reasons to get even bigger numbers, but we're just limiting it to those with these chronic illnesses. It's, it's um, about a fifth of, of jail inmates. Dr. Sally Sattel, resident scholar at the American Enterprise Institute, visiting professor of psychiatry at the Columbia University Miguelos School of Medicine. A really interesting piece about uh, mental health in America. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Sattel. Appreciate it. Thank you.
Exposing political fakers, fixers, and takers. He's Dan Proft, and this is The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the show. This week, President Biden had his first call with Chinese dictator President Xi. He talked uh, reportedly for two hours about uh, things like climate change and how the United States and China could work together under international rules, as was telegraphed by Joe Biden earlier in the week in an interview on Face the Nation. He's very bright. He's very tough. Um, he doesn't have, and I don't mean as a criticism, just a reality, he doesn't have a democratic small d bone in his body. But he is, um, the question is, I've said to him all along, that uh, we need not have a, uh, uh, a conflict, but there's going to be an extreme competition. And uh, I'm not going to do it the way that he knows this, because he's been sending signals as well, that I'm not going to do it the way Trump did. We're going to focus on international rules of the road. Mm-hmm. Uh, for more on this, we're pleased to be joined by Cliff May, president of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, Cliff, uh, President Xi doesn't have a uh, small D Democrat bone in his body. Uh, you know, he's a bloodthirsty dictator. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> well... That's right. I mean, I don't know exactly what Joe Biden at this point thinks about China. Don't forget there was on the campaign trail. He had taken the view and it was the establishment view that China was becoming over time more moderate, more liberal, a stakeholder in the international liberal rules based order, good neighbor in the global village, all of that. Now, that was the bipartisan view for decades. And it was based on really unwillingness to see what was happening right in front of our eyes. And the Trump administration did see it. In particular, um, I happen to know H.R. McMaster when he was national security advisor, a brilliant young man by the name of Matt Pottinger on the National Security Council, who is a Marine, a journalist, speaks fluent Mandarin. Mike Pompeo, they all said China's not liberalizing as it becomes wealthier, as we all expected. It is not moderating. And in fact, it is getting more aggressive. It sees itself as our adversary. And wants to do it wants to diminish the United States, and we have to decide whether we're going to let that happen. Joe Biden does seem a little bit more realistic. He's right. Xi Jinping hasn't been Democrat and vote in his body. Thinks democracy is rather rather silly form of government that's bound to collapse, uh, and he's going to push it towards that collapse every which way he can. So I, you don't have a policy yet. I would say I do worry in particular about John Kerry, who's now this climate czar who's likely to say, in order to get agreement for China to do good things on the climate over the next 30, 40, 50 years, we'll just have to suck it up in terms of Hong Kong, genocide of Uyghurs, military buildup, stealing our intellectual property, subverting Wall Street and our universities. Well, I mean, this is a topic that you know requires a deep dig. There's no question. And part of the handle from some you know, conservatives, principled realists, to borrow a, a phrase from the Trump administration uh, about China is, you know, Biden will probably sort of hold the line on issues related to the South China Sea and to the protection of Taiwan. But uh, the the concern is exactly where you just started to go is, will they make terrible trades, a la the Iran deal from the, Biden, the Obama-Biden administration, with China in advance of this uh, apocalyptic thinking about uh, climate change and, and associated energy policy, where China has uh, no interest in altering their industrialization and their development of energy sources that uh, run afoul of the Paris Accord, and so the, uh, John Kerry, for example, will look for Pyrrhic victories while giving away 
substance that puts us in a weaker position vis-a-vis China. Yes, and, and particularly if we start to uh, give up the, the great advantage we've had in uh, energy independence here in the U.S. by stopping fracking, by stopping the pipeline from Canada, that, that, that oil will probably, or that gas will probably go to, uh, to China instead. And of course, um, by reducing um, military spending, because we have other things to do, is the Chinese will continue as they happen to ramp up military spending to get to the point, which is unfortunately <laughs> close in a lot of areas now, where they can say, okay, the U.S. is not really a match for us. And in terms of Taiwan, I think the Taiwanese are rightly nervous right now because they see what happened in Hong Kong. But meanwhile, you've got the Europeans signing a, 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 a they haven't ratified it yet, but they've agreed upon a very wide-ranging new economic deal with Beijing, not even delaying it over uh, what's happened in Hong Kong, what's happened in Xinjiang, which is part of the Chinese empire. So uh, the, the China is in general being encouraged. Now, it'd be very nice if Biden can reestablish better relations with our European allies so they're on our side rather than seeing themselves as somewhere in between China and the U.S. trying to uh, uh, broker uh, fair deals. But uh, because we could, we could use uh, strong allies, and uh, I don't know that we have very many at this point. Uh, when we come back, I've got another question about uh, China and the context of uh, you know the, one of these uh, world quasi-governmental institutions that they control. That would be the World Health Organization. Uh, and uh, then we'll get to uh, this uh, assassination of a uh, uh, publisher in Lebanon and why we should take judicial notice of what happened there. More with Cliff May, president of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies, right after this. The Dan Proft Show. Welcome back to the Dan Proft Show. We're talking to Cliff May, president of the Foundation for the Defense of Democracies. Uh, We left uh, off before the break talking about China, and I want to pick it back up there. By the way, NBC News uh, tweeting out this week. In his first weeks in office, President Biden has made a flurry of international phone calls to American allies, including the leaders of Canada, Britain, France, Japan, and China. Hmm. Um, that is a very generous uh, uh, definition of ally to include China <laughs> in that list uh, you know, without a particular comment. Although, you know, maybe NBC, when NBC ma- mentioned American allies, they, were, they meant their allies, then they wanted to include <laughs> the Chinese communists. I'm not sure, Cliff. Um, yeah. But... But but the other news out uh, this week was first the WHO uh, saying that, uh, well, we don't believe the virus originated in the Wuhan Virology Lab. It was probably animal to human and so forth. And then this additional story, the Wall Street Journal reported about 90 people hospitalized with COVID-like symptoms in central China two months before it was first identified in late 2019, according to World Health Organization investigators who said they pressed Beijing to allow further testing. Boy, the, the, uh, the, is the WHO doing damage control for itself, for China, for the combination of the two? 
Yeah, a combination of the two, but particularly for China. I, what really strikes me as odd, I, do, I honestly don't understand it. Maybe you, you or somebody can explain it to me. I, I know that, sure, Biden wants to rejoin and refund the uh, World Health Organization. We have traditionally funded it 10 times what China does. But China has very has had very special relations, as they do with a lot of organ- international organizations, with the director general, Dr. Tedros. He's not a medical doctor. He's Ethiopian. Uh, he's very much been there boy. So, okay, Biden's a multilateralist, wants to get back in, wants to, but why not have one, two, three small demands for reform, things we know are badly broken at the WHO? Instead, he demands nothing, simply rejoins, begins the, 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 to, to write the checks again. And of course, then they go to Wuhan and they do not do a proper investigation. We don't see a connection. At least, aha, what a crazy coincidence. What a, what a coincidence. So, yeah. so that's what we're getting here. We're not getting anything that we can find credible. Very. Uh, by the way, this idea that it came out of a wet market there, the particular bat in question doesn't live within a thousand miles of Wuhan. So the idea that some you know hunter went out and killed a bat and put it on for sale at a wet market so somebody could have bat stew on Friday night just seems highly unlikely still. Hmm. Uh, I wanted to uh, query you about this uh, piece you wrote about a Lebanon publisher named, uh, Lebanese publisher named uh, 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 Lokman Slim, who was apparently assassinated, apparently assassinated, I should say, we don't know. But well, he was he, definitely assassinated. He was definitely assassinated, <laughs> apparently assassinated by Hezbollah. I was going to name the, right. the potentially right. responsible party. Um, you know, and he was a, an open critic of Hezbollah, uh, but critics of Hezbollah get killed all the time why are we to take judicial notice of this this killing well we should take traditional we should take notice of this and similar killings particularly because in lebanon it's a couple of things one is we support for example the lebanese armed forces and the argument for that is that's one of the better institutions there and while the lebanese armed forces is not actually strong enough to challenge in any way hezbollah which has its own militia a militia bigger and stronger than the Lebanese army, than the Lebanese armed forces. Nonetheless, we do support. And Lebanon is coming to us saying, we, God, we need help. They are sinking into, into debt way over their heads. Their banks are all corrupt. They need American help. They need the IMF. The U.S. has a big role in the IMF. They need these other international organizations. And meanwhile, Hezbollah is essentially in charge of that country. And when they don't like somebody... They murder them. And they say, and they're doing this early in the Biden administration, and they're essentially saying, what are you going to do about it? Anything? Are you going to get upset about it? And this is also a a larger trend, keep in mind. We just had also last week uh, an Iranian diplomat sentenced in Belgium to 20 years in jail because he had brought explosives and a detonator to the actual terrorists who were going to bomb a rally of dissidents. Uh, which a number of Americans were going to be uh, uh, Iranian distance and exile in Paris. So the Iranians are, are going around killing people around the world as well. Uh, in Russia, uh, you have Alexei Navalny, who's the lead op- leading opposition figure. Over the summer, he was poisoned with a nerve gas agent. His supporters got him out of the country, and had months in a German hospital, he survived, comes back to Russia, and he's arrested immediately. So you have these authoritarian regimes around the world killing people on their own soil for speaking their minds killing people on european soil 
I'm not sure they won't kill people on American soil. I think actually there have been some examples of that. Um, and we, the Americans, the Europeans, what are we doing about it? We're going to say mm. this is okay. You can kill people on your soil and our soil, and we will go back and shake hands and do economic deals, and it's all just fine with us. There's, if the U.S. doesn't do anything, the international community won't do anything to the extent there's any such thing as an international community. It's, I think it's kind of like the tooth fairy, a figment of our imagination. Um, but it's, but it, this, this will continue to get worse. It will not remain at the status quo if there is no pushback. The analogy I give, it's a Leninist one, is when you probe with your bayonet, if you feel mush, proceed. If you feel steel, back up. Uh, the tyrants of the world continue to feel mush. A pre, uh, right, appeasement is provocative, as we see over and over yes. again. What, uh, what, what do you sense will be um, any momentum lost, or will the Biden administration pick up the momentum that the Trump administration started with the Abraham Accords to try to uh, push uh, stability and something resembling yeah. peace in that region of the world? Well, I'm hopefully hopeful that they'll, they'll build on that, though they don't see a, a tremendous effort to do so yet. I'm hopeful they'll do so even and say, see, here's what we accomplished compared to what uh, tr- Trump accomplished. But it, but we're but I, I don't know. But but we haven't seen that effort be, be, begin at the, yet in any real way. You mentioned the people that President Biden has phoned. The prime minister of Israel is not among the allies that he has phoned so far. He might have wanted to call and say, hey, and by the way, whatever differences I have with Trump, and there are many, I do think the Abraham Accords are a great thing. First time in a generation that Arabs and Israelis are making peace, and it's a warm peace. And um, I think there are things we can do on uh, on that basis. And I want to hear your thoughts, and I want to give you my, well, this is, this is obviously not a priority for, for President Biden at this point. He is Cliff May, president of the Foundation for Defense of Democracies. Cliff, thanks as always for joining us. Appreciate it. My pleasure as always. Thank you. Take care. Listen to podcast of the show at danprofshow.com. Welcome back to the Dan Prof Show. And to close out the week, uh, this day in the purge, I wanted to comment on the uh, termination of Mandalorian actress Gina Carano, uh, Lucasfilms slash Disney, Lucasfilms being a subsidiary of Disney, fired Carano this week after uh, some of her social media posts. One in particular that was cited was this uh, Instagram post where she said, Quote, Jews were beaten in the streets, not by Nazi soldiers, but by their neighbors, even by children. Because history is edited, most people today don't realize that to get to the point where Nazi soldiers could easily round up thousands of Jews, the government first made their own neighbors hate them simply for being Jews. How is that any different from hating someone for their political views? I mean, she's got her history right. You know, the Nazi-Germany-Holocaust comparisons I, I loathe. This is, you know, my common invocation of Godwin's law, the longer uh, conversation on social media goes, the greater the tendency is for a Hitler invocation to track to one, meaning it's going to happen. And this is across the political spectrum. You know, these things are not comparable, even with the purge that's going on in the West right now. 
It is not comparable to the Holocaust. There's nothing comparable to it. Perhaps you could argue Stalin's pogroms, but but yes. So it's it's a terrible uh, metaphor to explain something that doesn't rise to the le- that level of moral and uh, moral horror uh, of human depravity. Okay. And the f- and, and and my point on the Corano thing, I don't need to recite these pedestrian claims that are being made. Uh, one of the folk, foci of conservatives on these sorts of stories is to point out the hypocrisy. And so you have uh, people pointing out that uh, if an, a fellow star of that Mandalorian series, Pedro Pascal, tweeted out in 2018 a picture of uh, Nazi concentration camps juxtaposed with the children of illegal immigrants de- detained behind bars at, at the southern border of our country, obviously in, in in a service of criticizing Trump. And, you know, he's fine. Now, he's actually rallied to the defense of Gina Carano, and he should. But I think the larger issue here is not one of hypocrisy, because in cases of neo-McCarthyism, which is what this is, what's going on here, like Gina Carano, if you argue hypocrisy rather than indecency, you might not get the results you're looking for. In point of fact, the only thing worse than the Jacobins' hypocrisy would be their consistency. You know, they can cure hypocrisy by going the other direction and treating their fellow travelers the same way that they treat their political opponents. That's actually what happened in the French Revolution. Just ask Louis-Philippe II. Uh, The better play is for conservatives to ask aloud, where are the Joseph Welches in the 21st century? The uh, former uh, general counsel for the United States Army who really provided a watershed moment in the McCarthy area where he challenged Senator Joseph McCarthy, have you no decency, have you no sense of decency? At long last, have you no sense of decency, sir? It's a decency argument that should be made, not a hypocrisy argument fundamentally. And uh, we need uh, to identify and frankly serve as the Joseph Welches of the neo-McCarthy era that America currently, uh, that, that currently afflicts America. This is Dan Proft. This is the Dan Proft Show.